As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Totally Football Show. Today, who's at the door? It's history uh, with a week of momentous events for you. Newcastle, is the Mike Ashley era Ashley over? There's a shake-up on Tyneside, but is he fit and proper, etc. Meanwhile, Italy lose. Spain end record-breaking run playing champagne football with a side featuring Gavi and Pino. We savour all of that, check on the World Cup qualifiers and a crucial Scotland-Israel, and have a look at Watford's new dawn. Will it be blue skies with Claudio? It's all in a busy old totally football show in association with Paddy Power. Hello, you. I was wondering when you'd show up, actually, listener. Uh, we've been sat here, me, uh, Duncan Alexander of Opta, Adrian Clark, and Rory Smith of the New York Times. Hello to you all. Hello. 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 R- Rory, how you been? I, I'm a, bit, a little bit under the weather, to be honest, but basically all right, yeah. All right. What? what um, there's, a super, there's a super cold going around. That if you don't... Yeah, obviously, along with the other thing that's going around, the super cold has, has, how, has become a problem. How does it present? Is this like an oldie version of uh, COVID? Yeah, it's like a, it's like a Morrison's own brand COVID. The um, the it presents as a as just a massive morass of of chitar, basically the, right. the type that lives in your nose rather than the Gulf state. Yes, although you know parallels in that. Good. All right. Uh, excellent. I've been following your work. Uh, good to see it hasn't it affected your output on the New York Times. Remains as low as ever, yeah. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, yeah, excellent. Uh, I enjoyed, for example, recently your uh, piece on underdogs and the, you know, the, the flourishing thereof this mm. season. Your, your sheriffs, your Brightons, your, your rail sociedads. Vintage season for upsets, No. It's a decent start, but my own, say my only real hope of anything happening that's that's not predictable is Italy at the moment, where I'm I'm kind of hoping that Napoli might be able to to at least cling on for a while um, mm. after what seven 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 straight wins they've got. They've, that's they've right. Start of the season, yeah. That's mm. that's a that's a feel good story. Yes, uh, but I think all of the others will probably fall by the wayside, and the usual powers will assert themselves. Unfortunately. Well. But that might, just be the, that might just be the super cold t- talking. It might be that I'm being more negative than necessary. What about you, Adrian? Are you feeling jaundiced? <laughs> Not so much jaundiced. No, I'm, I'm hopeful that, that in Premier League terms, some of these underdogs will, will stick around. I'm really loving the work of, of Brentford and Brighton in particular. Duncan, I know this. The stats on, on Brighton are pretty incredible at the moment. It's, it's not a fluke that they're... They're in and around the the, the, the top regions um, in terms of their second only to Man City for long passing sequences. They've got the second lowest XG against behind Man City and they're the second best pressing team behind Liverpool. So it's really, really impressive in terms of the numbers so far. Um, but, but I guess the fixtures haven't been too hard. What do the numbers say, Duncan? Well, agents just rattled them off, to be fair. So, um, <laughs> but, but do they yeah, point I mean, to this being sustainable? That's the question, I guess. Well, 
Not really, no, because as we all know, remember this time <laughs> last year, uh, or this stage into last season, obviously it started a bit later, but um, everyone was like, this is the most open title race we've had and, and blah, mm. blah, blah, and, it, and it, mm. I think you can't really judge until at least halfway through the season, but it, the chair thing was particularly enjoyable last week, and uh, yeah, I think that's the kind of beauty of autumn football, isn't it? It is a bit more of a, the pitches are nice, um, you can enjoy some shocks before mm-hmm. the, the real grind of the mid-winter sets in, so yeah. All right, the beauty enjoy of the it. fall. In so many ways, that's the, that's the beauty of football. You can bring all the numbers you want, but sometimes Sheriff going to Sheriff, Leicester going to Leicester, Long's going to... Well, we'll see what Long's does in Liga. I've not actually seen a Newcastle victory yet, you know, on the subject of upsets and that, but could be on the verge of what some Magpie supporters would regard as a massive win off-field this week. The sale of the club, which Wednesday night was rumoured to be imminent... We're recording this Thursday morning, listener. Of course, what's the situation? Rory, proper journalist, tell us. That's intimidating. So it's, it's come, come out of the blue, to be honest. It seems, what seems to have happened is that at roughly the same time and which order it is happening is a matter as of Thursday morning of, of some debate, is that the Saudis have lifted the, the blockade on BN Sport, the Qatari TV station, which was at the root of a lot of the, the, the Premier League's objection to the takeover because you have a... A takeover backed by the, the PIF, the Saudi State Sovereign Fund, which is linked intrinsically linked to a state that is currently not only blockading one of the Premier League's key broadcast partners, but pirating their content through a channel called Be Out Q, very witty. Uh, and at some point earlier this week, the Saudis and the, the Qataris have come to an agreement whereby the Saudis will allow BIN to broadcast within Saudi Arabia, which means they're not going to be pirated anymore, which means the piracy is not an issue. And simultaneously, before that, as a consequence of that, we're not entirely clear. There's different reports. Uh, the, the Premier League have decided that the Saudi State Sovereign Wealth Fund, which is chaired by Mohammed bin Salman, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, and which contains, I think, the Saudi media minister on its board, is not in any way linked to the state, which means that they don't have to uh, subject themselves, like the Saudi state effectively won't be subjected to the owners and directors test which means that things like piracy, but also other, you know, minor things like beheading journalists mm. and subjugating women and, and LGBTQ groups aren't going to be an issue, which means that the takeover can suddenly go ahead. But it just, everyone has to be abundantly clear that this Saudi state wealth fund is nothing to do with the Saudi state, despite the name. And the Prince Mohammed that you mentioned there, the Crown Prince Mohammed, is nothing to do with the Crown Prince Mohammed who the US Intelligence Department named as the man responsible for the Khashoggi murder. No, and the thing is, we, this, is, this is where we are with football now, isn't it? I really wrestle with this because the Newcastle United Supporters Trust did a survey and admittedly it, that's, that's a slightly skewed demographic because it's, it's likely there's a degree of echo chamber thinking there, which is totally fair enough. But 93% of their members, I think, support the takeover. And I get that on one level completely because they want rid of Mike Ashley. And I, I don't think anyone in the country, not even Sunderland fans, would, would begrudge Newcastle getting rid of Mike Ashley. That is a, is a net good, Mike Ashley not running Newcastle. But the price you have to pay, of, of all the fact that the fans have to think about all this stuff, the fact that fans are having to, you know, that are feeling compelled to change their avatars to Saudi flags, the fact mm. that, and it's the, it was the same with City and it's the same with PSG, that football football is being used, and I think the really the really sad thing from from the fans' point of view is that this is the the only way a team like Newcastle can compete. Literally, the, your only hope now is that if you want to keep pace with Man City and PSG, you have to hope that another country comes and takes you over, and you justify it to yourself in whatever way you can. But there are other realms of success beyond competing with PSG and Man City, and they they don't necessarily being involved being backed by a, 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 a state sovereign fund from the kind of state that we're talking about. Wealthy local carpet magnet. Those are the days. But, um... Yeah. That is absolutely right. But it's, if, you, if you want your team to, to win Leeds, if you believe that, that, is your, that that's the ultimate ambition, that that's the most enjoyable way to, to be a football fan is to have your team winning Leeds, then you do need a country. Just, you might get, you, you know, you might get, who are the best... Who are the best sort of incoming owners of clubs that have, have kind of competed at that level in recent years? It's probably FSG. And they're far mm. from perfect, but they're, they're just about as good. You know, they invest a reasonable amount. They 
they they have a kind of identity. They have a, they do a lot of the stuff that we talk about. Yeah. But they they also have had to get basically everything right to win stuff. And even then, they can't. It's not sustainable. They're not going to be able to compete with Man City for, in the long run. It's just not. It's not possible when the when the wealth is so divergent. Yeah. Still winning the Premier League. Not sure if that's the priority so much as staying in the Premier League for Newcastle in recent years. But it is curious. It is bizarre almost that this has been going on. Ashley says he's been willing to sell since, what, 2008? 12, 13 years now. And this is the first time that we've actually come to the, the, the brink of somebody taking over. No, none of the kind of more palatable uh, ownership uh, packages have, have actually come through. Sorry, Duncan. I mean, all of Rory said was correct. And the other thing you see on online is um, kind of one of the justifications is that they're long-suffering fans, which is a bit of a nebulous concept. I mean, I can remember Newcastle beating Barcelona at home and, and fans of most teams are never going to see their team do that. So there is a, you know, yes, as Rory said, if you, if you want to win the league, you probably do need this amount of wealth now. But this idea that just because you haven't won the league for a long time or a trophy for ages, that, that you're long-suffering, you're still getting to see your team in the most watched football competition in the world. So, yeah, I think it is it is odd to see just how polarised this, this has become. And it, it feels like... Obviously, the city takeover happened when social media was was relatively young. Whereas I think this is happening in the, you know, peak peak social media, and um, yeah, I imagine the next few weeks is going to be pretty pretty harsh. One of the things that's, that's always thrown at journalists is you don't say this about City, or you don't to an extent you don't say this about PSG. That that's not true. Lots of there are lots and lots of Ashman City fans, whether they feel that the media criticises them. But I, th- I do think the one thing that's happened in the last. What thirteen years since the city takeover went through is we've realised more as journalists. We're, we're journalists are allowed to learn stuff as well. We now understand what's happening in a way that, to be honest, when when two thousand and eight happened, we probably didn't. We we probably didn't fully see. Does if you remember the city takeover, it was it wasn't led by Khaldun Al Mubarak, who's an incredibly serious and incredibly senior kind of corporate figure. It was led by Suleiman Suleiman Al Fahim, who who wasn't. It felt kind of vaguely kind of showbiz it didn't feel like a serious thing if he was talking about signing the best player you know i think he was talking about signing ronaldo it was all it mm. all had this air of kind of venkies yeah like it felt a bit more in that mold of like this is going to be a disaster because these people don't seem serious and i think over the course of those 13 years i think the me journal football journalists certainly speaking for myself and i think if you look at the coverage it's it's changed sufficiently to maybe make it valid have worked out that this is not it's not a trophy asset in the same way as Chelsea, it happened with Abramovich. When Abramovich came in, we were all dazzled by the money. It was only afterwards that, that certain journalists started to write about, OK, well, hang on, we need to question where this money has come from. Mm. Journalists can't... You, you don't want a media culture where, where journalists have this hot take kind of reaction to everything straight away. You, you kind of want journalists to be allowed to learn a little bit about what's going on, to understand the, the mechanisms at play. And I think that's what's happened. So the reaction to Newcastle is... Different to the reaction to City in 2008, but the reason it's different is because City happened in 2008 and we've worked out what's going on. Right. Yeah, look, on an ethical level, clearly it's it's not an ideal takeover. But if we, if we can sort of sweep, not sweep it to one side, but just sort of, you know, block that off for a moment. I'm just thinking about the Premier League moving forwards. On a positive, because we've, we, you know, we've been very sort of pessimistic about it so far. On a positive... I do think the, the the Premier League as a spectacle, as a as a competition, might be better off for for having a strong, exciting Newcastle United side. I can't argue with you there, Adrian. It would be to everyone's benefit to have a strong and exciting Newcastle side. But I mean, we have absorbed Man City. We've I think a lot of people have absorbed the Qatari owners at PSG. Um, but I I do wonder whether this particular case might be, I don't want to say a tipping point, but it does colour in the future, in the next few months, if it goes through and you have Newcastle playing, if you have, say, certain representatives at St James's Park, does it change the way you feel about the Premier League as a purely sporting spectacle? Because you feel that actually it isn't. Am I being a little bit overdramatic there? No, it, it, it feels to me slightly... Sorry to dominate. Um, it, it feels to me slightly like a tipping point too, that this, that this is... It's, what, six months since the Super League? Since we were all talking about fan ownership and changing your governance and making sure that football was more sustainable. And now 
what we're meant to celebrate that the Saudis have come in at Newcastle for what are very clearly not sporting reasons. They, it's not an investment because someone loves the club. It's fine. That's romantic and naive to think that that happens. They like Mirandinia. They just, just <laughs> really. I've heard that they just the Barry Venison's massive over there. Just, <laughs> yeah. just love him. There's a the, Beresford uh, sector as well. <laughs> But, like, we know that that doesn't happen anymore. Just, you know, fa- fans generally don't have enough money to... Even the richest fans don't have enough money to, to buy their club, and even the ones that seem to, like Daniel Ek, aren't serious. And we, we kind of know that it's not great having, like, vulture capitalists in charge of a club, although at least, generally, it works that the, the better the team is, the more money they make, so everyone's interests are aligned. This is, this is, list, like City and like PSG, is not a sporting thing. The, the football is being used as a vehicle. Football is being used. Your club is being used for someone else's ends in some sort of geopolitical way of embedding themselves and meshing themselves with with the West as some sort of strategic alliance. And if you're okay with that, then great. If you're okay with the the human rights abuses, the fact that you now have to think about Saudi human rights abuses and the war in Yemen, then fine, that's that's up to you. It's not for anybody to tell you how how you feel. But that that it comes six months after we, we seem to have that moment where fans across the country, across Europe, said... We don't want these external forces of wealth and power dominating our game. This is not a good thing. You can't mm-hmm. think that the crushing of the Super League was a good thing and then also think that Newcastle now having Saudi ownership is a good thing. They, those two things are, are not in the same sphere. Would it be fair for Newcastle fans to respond to all of this by going, well, OK, maybe you didn't know about Man City back then, but you know about what it implies now uh, and you're happy to let that continue and not question that every week. So why are we being denied a reasonably analogous set of new owners? It is a really good question. And I can see why Man- why Newcastle fans would say, it's happened to Man City, why, why are you sort of pulling up the drawbridge so that it can't happen to us? Hmm. But at the same time, that... I mean, it's maybe not every week that the Man City thing's question, but it comes up all of the time. It comes up all of the time. It's it's not kind of the case that in a match report, you kind of write in, you know, I don't know, Ferran Torres scored the second goal for Manchester City, owned as a sports-watching exercise by Abu Dhabi. But it's covered a lot. It's covered in depth. And we, we see generally the... Um, the kind of yeah the currents that are shaping the game newcastle is is a is a huge club it's a it's a hugely kind of it's a huge club that's rooted in its community because of its location in the city it feels much more connected to its community than a lot of clubs do and th- there is something powerful about seeing that force taken over by something completely external that has no real interest in that force whatsoever what would anyone propose as an alternative then Denying the move, as, as, as indeed it was blocked before, possibly just about the piracy, and trying to institute some sort of local ownership? <laughs> I mean, that's <laughs> not going to work, is it? I mean, it, you know, we're, we're so far down a path that there's no way but back. But are we, and though? Think... They don't have to compete with, with Adug and, and, and any of these other groups. There are other sustainable forms of football ownership. We've, we've seen that. And as, as Rory mentions, there, there was a clarion call for, the, for, for similar, for, for those kind of innov- innovative approaches to be brought into this country. But, you know, in, instead... Yeah, but then, you know, you could run Newcastle a lot better. You could run them like Brighton. You could bring in, you know, mm. good coaches, good scouts, good good whatever. But the, the fact is there's still a, there's still a ceiling. They're not going to then challenge for the title. And, and yep. football fans inherently... Remember the thing I always think of is Charlton when they kept getting sort of eighth, ninth and they ran in Kerbishley mm. and their fans said, it's not good enough now. We need to get into the UEFA Cup with Charlton. And lo and behold, they've been rattling around League One and the bottom end of the Championship pretty much ever since. So fans will always be ambitious for their club and... I completely understand why Newcastle fans are excited, but you know, at the same time, it's we're in a paradigm where people are putting Saudi flags in their bios and and arguing, you know, turning the the stream of memes of tears and crying and all that stuff. It's just, it's is there? What, 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 what are these memes? I've missed. Well, you know, just whenever anyone disagrees, the the the, the same old memes of, of someone with a bucket for their tears. You know, all the, all the sort of stuff. I really don't want to list memes on a podcast, but um, <laughs> but but you know that kind of like almost turning any any situation, any kind of argument about any matter, however serious right. it is, into just kind of social media online banter. It's just you know, and that's right. that's kind Man of where we walking are. alongside ethical correctness turning his head towards saudi takeover that kind yeah, of yeah that kind of business yeah yeah, yeah. Right. no the, the, duncan's right though that we are the problem is that there is no the, the, the premier league has had this ownership neutral stance 
for so long that they refused to judge. I mean, what, there was a point where they, they let a guy who didn't exist own a club, and that, that I feel, was a particular nadir. But <laughs> the, who was the, that? One of the ones at Portsmouth, allegedly, yeah. All right, was known yeah. as Ali Al Mirage, does he didn't right. <laughs> And if you if you if you hear about the some of the groups that are, 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 are taken seriously by brokers selling clubs, there is no bar. Like we could get together and pretend we were billionaires, and we would get pretty far down the line of trying to buy a Premier League club before anyone worked out that we didn't. That you know, James got a leaky roof, and I don't have a house to live in. Like right. they would. There is the whole is that, thing is. Nuts. I mean, isn't that the Glazer paradigm? Well, the Glazers have access to money. Whether you know, kind of how they have have access to that money is is to do with bits of the global financial market that I just don't understand. But right. the, the, the there is no bar, and the Premier League have always held it up as a as a virtue that there's no bar. They are ownership neutral. This is the natural conclusion, and it's also the natural conclusion to the total worship of money of the Premier League era that. If you think about all the things that are now part of our kind of football talk, to transfer deadline day, where people get celebrated for spending as much as possible, winning the transfer window, the Deloitte money lead, and like being top, it's a source of great pride to English football that 20 of the 30 richest teams in the world are in the Premier League. English football worships money. It, it, it is built on a kind of absolute deification of money. And this is the, nat- it's, in that context, it's, it's not hard to see why, why Newcastle fans are like, well, we now have the most money. It's funny, I was reading for something I'm doing, I was reading a 92-93 season preview the other day, obviously the first season of the Premier League, and and they were going through all the teams, and there was like stinging criticism of Blackburn, money bags, Blackburn Rovers, because they'd bought Alan Shearer, and that, you know, that was possibly the last sort of local hero businessman to sort of take over a club and actually drive them to, to success. But there was a kind of, you know, contrary to, to what we're always saying, it's like now there's a real kind of like, well, Blackburn aren't aren't doing it the right way. And um, it was really striking. Mm. All right. Well, it's a thorny one and no mistaking, but uh, but yes, uh, more to come on that. It's not confirmed yet. Possibly it is by the time you hear this, listener. I don't know how long it took you to get round to us, but uh, we'll move on for now. And next up, let's hear about how Spain and their playing ended Italy's reign. Paddy Power Fan TV here outside Wembley where we're talking to massive England fan Nathan who was here for all the games during the Euros. Yeah, too right I was. Yeah, Southgate, you're the one. So you're looking forward to England's qualifiers this week, Nathan? Nah, mate, there's no England games this week. Are there? The World Cup qualifiers might not draw the same hardcore fans as the Euros, but Paddy Power is still offering money back as a free bet if one leg of your bet builder lets you down. Paddy Power. Pre-match bet with a bet's only min odds one-fifth per leg, min four plus legs, max free bet £10 per day. Excludes enhanced match odds on an exclusive T's and C's apply 18 plus begambleaware.org. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. It's here at last, Nations League Finals Week, traditional midweek in early October, which is the centrepiece of most people's football willing calendar. Happy Nations League Final Week, everyone. Uh, to be fair to you, for these finals were originally scheduled for last June, but they had to be moved because of the rescheduled Euro 2020, which is nobody's fault. Anyway, we've had one semi-final played, and in the words of Ned Ryerson, it was a doozy. Vamos! Woof. And you thought that no one actually cared about the Nations League finals. That's the sound there of uh, Spain beating Italy 2-1 at San Siro, ending the Azuri's world record unbeaten run at 37 matches. Some reaction the next day from Spain. Mamma mia, says Ass, front page there. Marca goes with Bravissimo Espana. Gzetta uh, from Italy has a big, we're still the champions, though. <laughs> Adrian, did you enjoy the game? I really enjoyed the game. I did. No, no shame in saying that. I thought it was an outstanding Spain performance. Mm. I really did. I thought that they, they had penetration. They had incisiveness, which, which wasn't always the case in the summer. And, and they did outplay, uh, strangely out of sorts, Italy, who I thought were lazy. When it came to defending, I didn't think that they worked anywhere near hard enough to keep the ball out of their own net. And, and that is something that we always associate 
with Italy. For me, one of two things stood out. I thought Marcus Alonso was fantastic. It just continues this this upward tra- trajectory. Suddenly, his dodgy defending isn't there, and and his decision making on the ball is is up there with the very best left backs around. Oyarzabal's deliveries were were quality, weren't they, for the goals, as were Torres's finishes, and 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 obviously that the two young boys. Wow, mm. Gavi looks a player, doesn't he? Neat and tidy, wonderful touch, just so confident, and and even though he was the story. I actually think that Jeremy Pino, the boy that came on, who's just a little bit older at 18, kind of outshot him, really. He was mm. even better. Just looks looks a sensational young winger. So, yeah, the future of Spanish football looks good. Obviously, they were helped, of course, by that Bonucci red card. Which I think, yeah. I mean, but even so, even so. And the numbers are extraordinary. Gavi, just 17 years of age, 17 years and 62 days oh. old, which I think makes him Spain's youngest ever player. Mm. He's younger than Facebook and more reliable. <laughs> right. It, Wednesday night was the first time he completed 85 minutes on the pitch. He'd never done so for Barcelona or even Barcelona's B team. Uh, and uh, Jeremy Pino, 18 years of age. Also, we should shout out for Ferran Torres, who's not that much older and has now scored 12 goals in 21 matches for Spain. That Oyazabel Torres thing, which which was kind of responsible for for both goals. I mean, it's basically Spain are looking fantastic again. Torres is looking like an actual centre forward. The commentators last night were, were at pains to point out that he's a proper centre forward, a, re- a genuine striker. He's not a false version. He is the real deal as a striker. And I have to say, I agree in terms of his movement. It's it's as good as seasoned strikers. Uh, I think that's that that much is clear to see as is his finishing. They were two great finishes. It, it, it begs the question why, after a blinding start to the season at Manchester City, he was then completely left out mm. of two or three games, at least, I think, on the trot before this international break. I don't know what happened behind the scenes there, um, whether he was carrying an injury or not, but, but I did find that bizarre. And it, it just feels to me as if Manchester City have a real striker, and that maybe they should start using him on a consistent basis. Yeah, but I also don't get why the, the commentators and everyone's so desperate to, to sort of say he is a proper striker. I mean, you know, flexibility is good, yeah. right, I think. But you're right, the finishes were great. The, the second one, particularly the header, you don't really see headers like that much anymore, where you kind of head it almost back wide of the goal and it, and it bent into the corner. It was sort of like someone out of the um, Charles Hughes soccer skills book on the read and he had to head that. Although Charles Hughes wouldn't recognise anyone born on February the 29th so he wouldn't like Ferran Torres. So, um, But yeah, they were, they, Spain looked good. In what way would he not recognise people born on February the 29th? Because he was a traditionalist and, you know, he probably was still operating on the old calendar or something. So, oh, right. It wasn't yeah. some kind of Raymond Dominic Zodiacal issue or anything like that. No. It feels like it could be, but I can't say with any proof. Okay. It feels right. like like there's been a traditionalist and there's there's not accepting the Gregorian calendar. Those are two. <laughs> I mean, that Venn diagram is just a circle for me. So yeah. So uh, you mentioned Bonucci's red card, and it was a, a dumb red card. Let's be frank. The elbow, I think you can certainly uh, justify yellow for, but uh, picking up the first yellow for for arguing with the referee uh, seemed particularly. Ill-advised, dumb as that was, though the crowd were even dumber. Just extraordinary, I thought, to spend most of the uh, opening half hour of the game booing the goalkeeper who won you the European title a few months before. You liked that, and it clearly had an effect on him as well. That that, that they barracked him, didn't they? They basically put him off of doing his job. But if you believe club football uh, sits above international football, then I think it was understandable. But people leave clubs. Duncan, they do. But if if you feel like that he left, um, you know, in a in a way to sort of better himself and and uh, as opposed to helping the club he grew up with, then I think you can understand why they did it. I mean, you might it might be it might backfire, and I think you can argue that it very much did backfire. But I think I'd rather fans did that than kind of you know were like, oh, I don't like Donnarumma anymore, and then oh, he's playing here, let's just forget about it. Do you know what I mean? Does also kind of suggest that everyone in the crowd was a Milan fan, doesn't it? Or do we think there were like Inter fans joining in because they thought there was a chance to get back at like an ex-Milan player, and then Juve fans yeah. who, who were upset like a because 
Just, like, it was just yeah. like the, I mean, in a way, that's nice that Donnarumma brings the entire sort of north of Italy together. That, they, that Juve fans don't like him because he didn't sign for them, and Milan fans don't like him because he left, and Inter fans don't like him because he used to play for Milan. It just right. There's, so there, is a, there, is a, there is a beauty in that. Yeah, nice. Okay. <laughs> uh, any other thoughts on this game? It's, it is strange, isn't it, that for all that Barcelona are a complete mess, mm. and that this, you know, the, one of the kind of probably the defining story of this year has been the gradual descent of Barcelona into into this chaos. To the extent that I think their chief executive said that if they were a if they weren't a member-owned organization, they would be technically bankrupt now. Like they they wouldn't exist if they were a corporation. And yet suddenly they've got Gavi, they've got Pedri, and they've got Ansu Fati, and it. You kind of think chucking a half decent coach, and they might be all right. And that 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 feels in in one sense really encouraging. Does Barcelona shouldn't be as bad as they've been recently? Mm. It's, that's 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 not good for football to see Barcelona being that bad. But also, it feels slightly unfair that they've just kind of randomly managed to pick up these three incredibly what? talented footballers. I mean, they would say it's not random. I guess that they have a tradition of, of doing this. Well, kind yeah, of but thing. bear in mind, Pedri they signed from right. Palmas. Yeah, Fatty and, and Gavi have come through the through the youth system, but it does. It, the timing is their timing is absolutely impeccable. fortuitous. Yeah, but, and but but given the fact that they can, now can't afford to to spend gazillions on, on on bringing in players, that La Masia is more important than ever. I, I think to come out of all the, the, this absolute financial carnage at Barcelona, the one thing to come out of it is that the young kids are going to get more of a chance now, mm. and and that that is potentially something to to celebrate and and look there might be there might be more well i'm sure there are other really gifted young kids about to about to break through there do you think that they're, they're all like gavi they're all like the pro evo unlicensed versions of former players yeah <laughs> i like to think so piniesta adrian i've kind of got used to this players coming on and it's the youngest ever in the champions league or it's the youngest ever to reach 21 goals in the case of Haaland or, yeah, or Gavi at 17 and this continual erosion of, of, of what we would normally expect as the kind of age of maturity for a, f- a football player just to put it in perspective what is it like for a 17 year old to play football for Barcelona in the Champions League internationals against Italy at San Siro at 17 you've got to, you've got to be really strong in your own mind that is for sure you have to look I'm trying to cast my mind back to to when I was that age when I was just turned 17 I hadn't even played a proper reserve game so in effect I hadn't played in a man's game I was Mm. playing for the youth team I was new to the youth team which was kind of you know competitive enough at that stage of my development and career I remember playing my first reserve game and everyone was massive. Like everyone was right. just sort of strong that you were coming up against and, and it felt really different. And that's in front of, you know, 1,000 people in a, you know, at Highbury or something. So it is it is remarkable. But but I think that young players are, are fearless. I played for England schoolboys in front of 50,000, 60,000 fans and it didn't bother me at all. I was just excited. It's just, just really wanted to show all those people there that, that I had some skills that I might be able to score a goal in front of them to experience that roar. You, you, you're not really that bothered when you've been through, when you're confident in your footballing ability, you're not worried about playing in front of a crowd. But but I take my hat off to these young boys that are that are looking so at home at the very highest level of, of football. It's it's amazing. They, they must be, they must be brilliant players because I, you know, I, I don't think I could have been anywhere near it at, at that age. Do you remember which year it was you played in the uh, the schoolboy game at Wembley? The Cub Scout Classico, as it was always known, because pretty much 80% of the crowd was uh, Arcalis yeah. who'd gone, I'm taking you to a huge game at Wembley. Oh. Why is it the, the FA Cup final? No, you it's sound bitter, Duncan. Boys. Have you had um, a, a Cub Scout Classico I did go to experience. one of them, yeah. One, Were you one a Cub year. Scout? I was, I was in the Cubs. I didn't join the, the Scouts. That's, mm. that's the mm. What that's was behind the Rubicon. Your... What? Did you tear up your draft papers? What, 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 I didn't what, enjoy wow. the whole ethos. I never did any of the badges. I didn't yeah. sing did no anthem. I burnt my eyebrows cooking a pancake <laughs> over a candle. I really didn't get on with the whole thing. So really? I always yeah. felt silly. I, I did make the step up from Cubs to Scouts, but I always felt self-conscious. Never wanted any of my friends to see me in, in yeah. the clobber. But, yeah. but when I got there, I enjoyed the sport bits. But the whole unfurling of the flag, the salutes... Just never really felt the, felt like me. 
all I got was the reading badge and the running badge, which I think was me learning what the Cub Scouts were about and, and me trying mm. to run away. I think sometimes. <laughs> nice. the, incidentally, the Cub Scout cap was unerringly similar to the England schoolboys cap that I was, was later to, to pick up. Yeah. So, um, yeah, just, yeah. Just, just saying. Did you also get a waddle? No woggle, but I got a it's pin a badge. Yeah, never got a woggle, but I got a pin badge, and um, yeah, it's I've still got it somewhere. Yeah, very right. proud. I don't think you can take an organisation seriously that uses the word woggle. <laughs> <laughs> True. Uh, timing is everything. So naturally, it was just uh, this Wednesday that uh, we recorded a new Galazzo, uh, celebrating. Italy's unbeaten genius and the Euro triumph. That should be with you shortly, as soon as they put another unbeaten run together. Uh, yes. Anyway, oh, more semi-final action coming up Thursday night. If this reaches you in time, you can enjoy Belgium against France. That's in Turin. And then the final is Sunday night and the third, fourth playoffs before that, etc. and so on. Oh, by the way, uh, with the game being played at San Siro, there was some comment about plans to knock it down and that. And a quick update on the situation, because this happened to be in Gazetta this morning, back in, when was it, 2019? That it was, yes, they're knocking San Siro down. And, of course, nothing's happened because, well, I mean, it doesn't, does it? Uh, the latest situation is that if if the right people get in in the council elections in Milan and they give their approval, they could maybe start before the end of the year, the year being 2022, and have a new stadium ready for 2025. This is deemed essential because club earnings, it's that money thing again, are a fraction for Inter and Milan at San Siro compared to even what Juve have. They're about, well, they're less than half of what Juve gets from their Allianz Stadium, which is a lot smaller, and and about a quarter of what the likes of Real Madrid or Barcelona get for theirs. Anyway, is any of this going to happen? Frankly, I don't know. Roma have been waiting over 10 years now for their new stadium, including various moments when you know, an owner has gone along with a a spade and broken ground and all that, but nothing happens. So we'll see. I think we'll be enjoying San Siro for a while yet. Now, very shortly, we'll have more internationals news with some World Cup qualifier biz. But next up, we'll ask Duncan to reach into his special stats file and show off some of his favourite numbers from the season so far. I'm Adam Hurry, and to mark the 100th episode of my Football Clichés podcast, Jamie Carragher popped in to discuss his footballing fascinations and irritations on the latest edition of Mesut Harland Dicks. It's like Desert Island Discs, but for football. I played for England as a striker. Really? At, uh, yeah, don't look so shocked. I am shocked. And, uh... <laughs> <laughs> I watched you at the 1997 Amsterdam Sony 6s. I can't believe this. <laughs> Whether this is a feather in my cap or not, I was keeping Emil Heskey out of England on the 16th team. He was on the <laughs> That bike. is a feather in your cap. <laughs> and all the other teams were doing proper warm-ups and we were just bladdering balls at the wall and having <laughs> shots and just like just causing mayhem. And we've just gone out with no sort of like formation, anything. It's just like, just go out and put like whatever. And, you know, it was just an absolute <laughs> disaster, but funny in a way. How is El Hadstuf these days, Jamie? How is he doing? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, he rates me really highly. <laughs> <laughs> to listen to Jamie in full flow, check out Football Clichés wherever you get your pods. And of course, ad-free on The Athletic. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. And with Paddy Power, if something doesn't go quite according to plan, you can get your money back as a free bet if one leg of your bet builder lets you down. Which might just come in handy when Brighton start being Brighton again and go back to outperforming their XG and not winning. Free match bet builders only. Get your stake back as a free bet. Minimum four plus legs. Max free bet £10. Excludes enhanced matchups. Season C supply. It's over 18s only. And please gamble responsibly. Just let me announce that the Women's Champions League have a group stage this season for the first time ever. You knew that. It got underway this week. Tuesday, European champions Barcelona hammered an English side yet again. This time it was Arsenal, who they did 4-1. Of course, Barcelona had beaten Chelsea 4-0 in the Champions League final earlier this year. 
Barcelona registering 34 shots on the Arsenal goal, Adrian. Mm. This is an Arsenal team who'd won four out of four in the WSL coming into this. Yeah, I mean, this Barcelona team must be just at an incredible level because I've watched some of the Arsenal women's team this season and they've been superb. Just brilliant to watch. Tactically very smart. They've got some tremendous individuals and, and they've thrashed Manchester City. They've beaten Chelsea deservedly. They're the best team in this country right now, Arsenal women under under Edeval. So for them to get you know, dominated, I, I, yeah, it was, it was amazing. A lot of those shots, in fairness, were, were from long distance. They didn't all hit the target, but it was one-way traffic. So yeah, this Barcelona team is, is clearly very special. Scary. Wednesday night then, Chelsea and Wolfsburg had a bit of a thriller. The Blues were 3-1 down, but came back to draw 3-3, equalising in stoppage time with a goal from former Wolfsburg forward, Pernil Harder. Crikey. Michael Cox calling that a 10 out of 10 game. And Coxie, of course, not easily pleased. Of course, it's Women's Super Sunday coming up in the WSL this Sunday, as Lindsay Hooper was telling us only the other day. Uh, we'll have some reaction to that in Monday's Totally Football Show. Right now, though, Duncan, 20% almost of our way through this campaign. What are the most important stats of the season so far? Uh, well, let's have a little rummage. Um, I enjoyed Tottenham becoming only the second team in Premier League history to win their first three games and then lose their next three games after Everton in the early 90s. Um, there was obviously some stuff around Ronaldo. He needs to play 29 more Premier League games to overtake Dean Holdsworth as the player with uh, all the letters in Ronaldo in his name to have played the most times in the Premier League. That's the big target, I imagine. Um, uh, Paul Pogba's seven assists. That's already equaled Paul Scholes' best season in the Premier League, which Remarkable. confused generations. Um, but I think at this point in the season, you can actually take stock a little bit and kind of each Premier League season tends to have a little little flavour or a little kind of um, theme to it. Um, last season, obviously, it was, are we going to have 4,000 penalties? Because at the start of the season, there, there were a lot. This year, I think the biggest kind of talking point on the pitch, at least, is um, is the new kind of refereeing direction where they can, you know, let tackles go. The kind mm. of, the Sean Dyche gambit, as it's known, I think. And um it is actually kind of being shown up in the stats. So this is the first ever recorded Premier League season to see under the, under 20 fouls per game. It's only just under, it's like 19 point something. But for, for the first time, we are seeing fewer than 20 fouls a game. And it's also the... But it's not that we're actually seeing fewer fouls, it's just they're not being called. Well, yeah, that's the thing. It's like, mm. I, I don't think anyone's looking at the Premier League this season and saying, well, teams are sort of, you know, being really gentle with each other. I would say it's been a little bit more rough. So you can definitely see the... Um, the fruits of the decision. Now, whether that's good or bad is is for debate. And it's also the first season to ever see uh, under three yellow cards per game as well. So it is. we are looking at the most lenient season in Premier League history as it stands. Now, that could change, I imagine. We, we saw last season where they changed a certain interpretation around um, handball to sort of make it, you know, to, to stem the amount of penalties. So it's not unlike the, the Premier League to change stuff mid-season, but it will be interesting if, you know, if we do see kind of a high-profile injury or bad tackle, whether there's a, a backlash. So but That's always going to happen, isn't it? I, I just think it's... And, and when that happens, there'll be a red card. I just... I, just, I really like it. I, re- I just think it's overwhelmingly positive in terms of watching a game that has less fouls, seeing a game that's a little bit more physical, a little bit more of a throwback, I suppose, to what I was used to growing up. I just, I, I do feel it's better. I really do. Yeah. I mean, I think, as we've talked about the Super League earlier, and I think what what we realised with the Super League was that it was essentially the big three teams in Spain and Italy trying to join the Premier League, in a sense. And... It's almost like the Premier League is really doubling down on its international appeal, and and one of the things global viewers love is you know the the aggressiveness, the pace, the kind of the back and forth. So um, it, it does make well, yeah, it does make sense to kind of double down by doing this. But I can also see some sort of incident in the distance where people will be like, well, hang on, who who let this through? So we'll see. Mm. The Ken Early wrote a really good piece in the Irish Times a few weeks ago about the Harvey Elliott injury sort of suggesting that the, the change in environment had made tackles like that feel more feasible to players, that, that players had been slightly incentivized to take more risks and pointing out that the way that, the way that football has been over the last 20 years means that players will run, will run past opposition players 
at angles because they know they're not going to get tackled. Just no, just everyone knows that that's a foul, and all of a sudden that might not be a foul anymore, and that might be a problem. So you do see something coming down the line where maybe there is a, an injury, or maybe not an individual injury, but kind of a succession of injuries where we say, "Hang on, is this has this has something changed that isn't positive?" My my instinct is that it'll all. I think the big problem with it really is that they they it's happened because they're trying to solve a problem by doing something that's got nothing to do with the problem last season was was not that no one was saying last season there are too many fouls mm. we were saying that VAR is interfering too frequently mm. so and it's ruining the flow of the game and it's it's micromanaging the game there's sort of a degree of mission creep with VAR so what PGMOL have kind of said is all right we'll tell you what, we'll solve that not by changing the way we use VAR but we'll just say that fewer things are fouls and that that is the referees have kind of found a way around a problem of their own making by changing something that wasn't an issue to people, I think. The logical extension of that approach would lead to a pretty fascinating spectacle, actually. Well, yeah. just no fouls at all. No fouls at all. <laughs> speed, well, it'd be speedball too by the end, I think. Yeah. So, um... it, it, was, it was too easy to get a red card. It was too easy to get a penalty. I, I, we're surely all in agreement on that. Oh, it was totally, but it wasn't... Mm. Not, not because I of like the... But it, <laughs> but it wasn't because of the... Um, the rules on physicality, the, the penalties and stuff were because of VAR interfering too frequently in, thing, in those challenges that are basically mm. subjective and trying to, trying to create a kind of objective truth to something that doesn't really have one and also the stupidity around handball, which hasn't really changed. I don't think anyone was... There was no real pressure that I discerned last, last season to say we need to be more lenient on big clattering challenges in the middle of the pitch. I don't think anyone had a problem with that particularly. The, I think the, the one thing that's, that's uniformly positive is the referees now all always seem to give it two or three seconds to see whether the ball breaks for the team that had possession before blowing the whistle. Yeah, that's definitely been, a good thing. It's been a vintage season for playing advantage, I think we can agree. Hmm. What about the fact that this is only the second season, I believe I'm right in saying, uh, Duncan, in English top flight history, where four teams, four, have failed to win any of their opening seven games. So what, what does that say? Those sort of things are, are pretty random and cyclical, really. I think really? you know. I mean, it's fairly close. Not at a the widening top. chasm type thing. No, I mean, it, there's no team that's won more than five of their opening seven games. Only Chelsea have won five, so that's mm. you could argue it's it's quite push off. I mean, I looked at um, the number of times that a team's won seven out of seven, a la Napoli, but in but in England, and it basically since the 1960s, it happens once a decade. Um, so it's one of those things, I think when it happens, I'm sure people in 1973, 74, when Leeds did it, were like, oh no, we've lost our national game because Leeds are finding it too easy. But it's just one of those things that happens every few years. So <laughs> I'm, I'm fine with that. The table does seem weirdly concertinaed. Like to have, what, the five teams on 12 points? Mm. There's four teams on 14, aren't there? There's like City, United, uh, Brighton and Everton, so... Yeah, that maybe it's that, and that it seems that the, and there's only sort of two points between first and sixth or seventh. That does seem really reasonably, like unusually tight. Hmm. Mm. Well, let's see. Let's see. All right. Well, next up, we're going to move on, and I mentioned World Cup qualifiers. We'll be checking those out. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX's Welcome to Wrexham, all new, Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker, and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Happy Kevin Keegan resigning as England manager in the Wembley Toilets Day, everybody. October the 7th on your calendars. Uh, October the 7th, 2000 was, of course, mm. the, the first of such days when Kevin told the dressing room his England boys, after the 1-0 defeat to Germany at Wembley, that that was that. David Davis, director of the FA, speaking with 
Kevin kicking about it in the toilet cubicle of the dressing room. Bex, we read, was in tears. Tony Adams was asking Keegan to reconsider. But Kevin, an honourable man, said to TV cameras, I'm just not good enough. And off he went. Uh, Crikey. There you go. Uh, England were only four days away from their next qualifier, so it was delicate timing. And it's almost exactly the same situation then as today. It was three days before England's qualifier as, as we speak. And again, Kevin Keegan won't be in charge for it. Uh, England will be <laughs> Is Howard on. Wilkinson going to be in charge at the weekend? I'd like to see that, actually. <laughs> it's a way to Andorra, so... I, you know, how delicate the identity of the person on the sidelines is, I, I, I'm not sure. But uh, given that that's not the biggest of games, let's have a check on what else is happening in the World Cup qualifiers. Pretty thin gruel in terms of fixtures. Uh, remember, only the 10 group winners qualify for Qatar and the second place teams will be going to playoffs, joined there, excitingly, by the two best placed Nations League group winners that didn't already qualify for the playoffs. But in terms of the second place battles, the games that there are that look key pretty much all involve teams from in and around the British Isles. You've got Wales, who are going to be away in Prague facing the Czech Republic. Now, these two teams are vying for second place in Group E behind runaway leaders Belgium. Northern Ireland who are in Italy's group. Italy, again, runaway leaders, six points clear of Switzerland. Northern Ireland are in Switzerland, who are clearly thus their rivals for a second spot. Uh, that's that's the situation there. Republic of Ireland, not much for them to be playing for in terms of qualifying. They're fourth in their group behind Portugal, Serbia and Luxembourg. Republic of Ireland are in Azerbaijan. In Group F, meanwhile, there's another very key game, though, and that is scotland hosting Israel. Now, Scotland currently sits second in the group, a fair way behind Denmark. Israel, though, the visitors, are just a point behind them. And this, just the latest of this unlikely rivalry that's been developing in recent seasons, the seventh meeting, this, of these two nations in the last three years. We're joined now by Laura Brannan of Motherwell Football Club, who I think is going along to this game, having previously witnessed some of the previous ones. Laura, thank you for joining us. Uh, how big is this game? How confident are you feeling? This is the big one, isn't it? <laughs> really, really looking forward to this at the weekend. It has been a long, long time since we've had a sold-out Hamden for a crunch game like this, of this magnitude. The Euros was great, but the fact that all the fans are going to be back in Hamden, it's just got a completely different special edge to it. Hmm. Nine points from your, your remaining four games and you'll guarantee a playoff spot for the actual World Cup, which would be fantastic. So win this on Saturday, then beat the Faroe Islands away on Tuesday and then beat Moldova away and you'll be sorted before you have Denmark at home next <laughs> month. That sounds doable. Is that right? You make it sound so easy, but that's never the way with Scotland. So um, we, we will not, even if we win on Saturday, we're not going to get carried away because in typical Scotland fashion, something stupid would happen, like we'd trip up in Moldova and have to get a result against Denmark. It really is, just take each game as it comes, the, the usual old cliche, but Saturday is so big because we've managed to eliminate, well, almost definitely eliminate Austria, Austria from the, the reckoning here with that away win last month, which no one really expected, to be honest. To then remove Israel from the, the works as well would be huge. To put them at such a disadvantage if we were to get a win, because they have Austria coming up in their running of games. They've got Austria in November. So, yes, we've got Denmark, but we would like to be in the position where that game is just the final game of the tournament and it doesn't really matter. In saying that, though, there's never really a game when Scotland can um, just have a, a so-called friendly and say it doesn't matter. So you never know. You never mm. know. But we're, we're still confident. How, how do your previous experiences of watching Israel uh, play at Scotland, how do they how do they leave you feeling? There's been so many in recent years. Um, it feels like a kind of annual occurrence to meet Israel. The thing with playing them is, though, that you can't really call it. Uh, we're two very even sides, I think, the way things are just now. And there's not really a favourite going into this or any of the previous games. The The playoff, which we had this time last year, was huge. And you saw how it went right down to the wire, right down to the very last penalty. There's nothing that really divides these teams just now. So I don't think anyone can confidently go into any meeting between the two sides and say that there's an outright favourite. 
there's really no way to call this. I, I think the good news for Scotland is that they're quite depleted. And I think the manager is, is currently having a squabble with the under-21 manager who has a really important game over who gets which player. So, it's uh, yeah, so maybe maybe they won't be at full strength. That's certainly what, what, what the indication is. I just wanted to quickly ask you about Jack Hendry. It's just a really interesting career trajectory, career path. Currently starring for Club Bruges in the, in the Champions League. You know, he, he didn't really get a look in at Celtic. He's been to Melbourne City, Oostend, MK Dons. He's a player that, that Scotland will probably rely on in this game, right? Yeah, and saying that because obviously Grant Hanley's uh, suspended for this one, so I think naturally you're kind of probably looking to Jack Hendry to replace him. Um, it depends obviously on the line-up and the shape and everything. But yeah, it's interesting because Jack Hendry, when he played in Scotland whether it was coming through the ranks at Thistle or, or at Partick Thistle or when he played at Dundee or even at his time at Celtic, I don't think many people really backed him to to be the level he's at now. I'll hold my hands up as well. I was one that said, look, he's, he's not good enough. Um, I questioned if he was good enough for Celtic's level, never mind Scotland's level. Um, and he's proved a lot of people wrong. He's really he's taken to this getting out of Scotland, getting out of the UK and playing abroad and really playing it to his advantage. And it, you see more and more Scottish players doing this now with the likes of of uh, Ryan Gold and, and Johnny Russell, um, Aaron Hickey as well, Liam Henderson as well in Italy. Mm-hmm. Um, it is becoming more and more common now for Scottish players to go abroad, albeit Henry is currently the only one getting picked for the squad. It just shows that the, the education that these players can get by getting out of... I mean, I know we talk about the goldfish bowl being Celtic and Rangers, but even just in Scottish football, there's a goldfish bowl in the sense of everything's so concentrated and analysed to death and, and almost like you, you might not get the same education as you get abroad. And it's really broadening the, these players' horizons to get out there and just test themselves against different opposition, different styles of football. And that the Champions League will be invaluable for them as well this season. Mm. Huge game then, Saturday, five o'clock. Uh, Laura, but uh, you, you must be pretty happy beyond Jack Henry with just the level of this this Scotland squad. I mean, looking through the team list, uh, the, the, the list of players, there's some some really solid names there: McTominay, McGinn, Andy Robertson. Oh, there is. I mean, I used to say when it was Euro 2016, uh, we looked at likes of Iceland and Hungary, and we used to talk about how they were a, a team and how they didn't leave any standout players, but they played as one. And I used to always say that Scotland had to kind of model themselves on that. But see, in recent years, we've had these star players emerge and really come into their own. I mean, you look at the likes of Kieran Tierney, Andy Robertson, John McGinn. These are star players. And you might not, maybe there's a debate over whether they're world class or not, but these are some of the best players that we've had on paper for a long, long time. So it's really a chance now for these individuals to really stand out and, and be themselves and it changes the whole outlook of our squad. We we do have the capability to be a big team and, and be a successful team. And it's just really, this is our, this is a great chance for us to really push on. We've qualified for the Euros, we've done that. Now let's go over the next hurdle and qualify for the World Cup. Brilliant stuff. Laura, thank you so much for, for joining us and in, enjoy the game Saturday evening. <laughs> thank you so much. Laura Brannan. Now, ooh, very shortly, a couple more special guests are going to be dropping by to talk to us about Claudio Ranieri. First of all, though, let's get some odds from Paddy Power with producer Charlie. Thanks, James. Hello to every single one of the listeners and hello to Carl Monaghan from Paddy Power. We're getting towards the business end of World Cup qualifying. There are some big games involving British nations looking to make their way into the playoffs, like Wales. They're in Prague on Friday, Carl. Will they get the checks out? Well, Charlie, this is the tricky assignment for Wales. No game-changer Gareth Bale for the Dragons. Remember, he's got a torn hammy. This just makes things so much tougher for them and gives the opposition a boost in the tunnel before a ball is kicked. But the one thing we can expect is the main man for the Czechs, Patrick Sheik, to lead the home side's line in Prague. The Bayer Leverkusen striker hit five goals in the Euros in the summer. And who can forget his spectacular goal of Hamden from the halfway line? The 25-year-old, who the big boys must be keeping tabs on, has 11 in his last 15 for his country, Charlie, and is a cracking bet in the first goal scorer market at 13-5. to in terms of the match betting, though, the Czech Republic, no surprises. Charlie are the favourites at 7-10. to 10. The draw is 5-2 to two, and a baleless Wales are 4-1. to one. 
And pushing my hipster glasses up the bridge of my nose, I'm going to say that Scotland v Israel is the biggest qualifier of the weekend in Europe. And it's a proper rivalry. They always play each other. Well, we start off this one with a joke, Charlie. I think, after all, it is the international break. Why did the hipster burn his mouth when he ate pizza? Because he ate it before it was cool. Yeah, Charlie, these two are so familiar with each other these days. And this Friday's bout will be their seventh in a few years. But the Holy Land and Steve Clark's men will be eyeing up second in the group as a place in Qatar 2022 will be the prerogative for both of these football mad nations. The recent head-to-head record has seen Scotland win just two of their six clashes in the last three years against them. But home advantage is likely to be decisive here, and that is exactly how the traders in Paddy Power see it. Scotland are the favourites at 10 to 11. The draw is 23 to 10, and Israel are 3 to 1. With only one point separating these two at the business end of the group, the 7 to 2 on offer about Scotland to win and both teams to score looks the way to play it, Charlie. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only, terms and conditions apply. And when the fun stops, stop. When the Premier League returns Saturday week, there's going to be a new face in one of the dugouts in the opening game of the weekend. It's Watford's Saturday lunchtime fixture with Liverpool, and that new face belongs to Claudio Ranieri. Uh, it is 18th club, actually, of his uh, extraordinary career, plus a reasonably disastrous four-game spell in charge of Greece. What can we expect? Well, here's Golazzo's James Horncastle and Gab Marcotti with their thoughts. I think there's a good chance that, it, that it's going to work. I hate the way some superficial media go and say, oh, look, you screwed up Fulham. Well, and we took over Fulham, they were in last place and they had an expensively uh, but horrendously assembled team and a really badly run club. It was a mess. And he couldn't fix it. He may be the miracle man, but he only has so many miracles. But they were dead last on the table when he took over. Contrast that with what he's taking over at at Watford, where he's, I think, 15th in the table. He's three points clear of the drop zone, or even four points. He's got teams below him, like Norwich and Newcastle, that have bigger fish to fry. Um, he's got owners that have been up and down, but because of that, they know how to avoid relegation. And I think he's got a decent team. So I think it's more likely than not that Watford are going to stay up. But I would have said that even if, if Cisco had still been around, because mm. that's the faith I have in the Pozzos. How much of a, a, a better example of what Watford fans can expect is uh, Ranieri's recent performance with Sampdoria, James? Well, I mean, he's he's no stranger to these kinds of situations. Um, I remember when I was living in Rome, going to watch his Parma team play uh, against Lazio at the Stadio Olimpico, and he took over Parma in, in dire straits mm. um, and kept them up, signing Pepita Rossi. He did a great job at Sampdoria, relatively speaking. You know, I mean, it's it's not something that will have grabbed headlines outside of Genoa, but um, yeah, I mean, he took over them in in the bottom three and kept them up with games to spare. I think their record with him in his first season, if you just take the moment when he became coach, was good enough for 11th. Uh, and then last season finished ninth, which was their uh, their best finish since 2014. Um, taking over a Samp side that had kind of, you know, under their madcap owner, Massimo Ferrero, who has sort of been trying to sell the team but then you know gets into negotiations and keeps asking for more money and wonders why someone then doesn't pay that money um <laughs> it was a tough job because they'd got rid of the the shicks the scriniars the the Torreras and that sort of thing so the thing is uh, you look at that Watford squad in contrast with the Fulham one and there are players who've played in Serie A who will be aware of how someone like Claudio works I would say and I think that is to his uh, to his benefit. I'm just surprised the Pozzos hadn't hired him before. <laughs> <laughs> James Horncastle and Gabriele Marcotti. All right. Uh, Rory? Yeah, I've heard James use that line at least once this week already about the Pozzos and Ranieri having to... Is it being surprised and they've not encountered each other already? I, I, I'm I'm similar to, to Gab and, and James in that I basically think the Pozzos are quite smart 
I think they've got a system that works for them. It, it isn't necessarily the way that we are used to clubs being run or managers being regarded, but that's fine. It's a, you know, the world is a wonderful mosaic and, and if there's, there's room for all things. And it has worked for them. You know, the record with Udinese is superb. They, they, they feel it's the best, the best for Watford as well. The, the question I'd have more than anything is that just purely financially, like it's, it's not good to be sacking managers, even if you regard a manager as a, as a cog in the wheel. And if the cog stops working, this will offend Duncan as a cyclist. But if the cog <laughs> stops working, you get rid of the cog and put a new cog on. And that's fine. It's fine to see it like that. That works for them. But you shouldn't be trying to do that. Does it cost you money? You have to, you have to pay the managers off. It's inefficient. And I think the one thing over the, the, the last few years, particularly with Watford, which is where their focus is now, the pot zones, They've not really appointed anyone who you look at and think that is a long-term appointment. You, you don't look at... I mean, Zisco had been working at, at Dino Tbilisi, and he's obviously quite a good coach, but that is not a, an appointment made to, to get them out of the, of the Championship and into the Premier League and established in the Premier League, and then it's gone wrong. That is very clearly designed to be a short-term appointment that is then sort of dispatched when, when you hit the Premier League. And... To an extent, I did the radio with James on Monday and, and he was saying that the fact they've waited until now is probably the Pozzo's kind of nodding to British football culture. And <laughs> but Because in Italy, they'd have said, well, all right, you've done your bit, off you go, we're going to go and get... But they didn't do that before with Jokanovic, no? They just got rid of him straight away. Yeah, and they've done it a few times. But I I, I would have thought that Gino, I mean, Gino Pozzo's as well-connected in football as anybody. Mm. And surely he should be trying to, to find, and maybe I presume he is, but... The fact that he can't find a manager who can oversee that project for two or three years, like Guidolin did at Udinese, say, mm. when they, or Zaccaroni before him, where they find a coach who is, who is on the up and use them for a couple of years before losing, losing them to a bigger club. The, the fact they're just going for all these very obvious kind of make, like make ways and stand-ins because the, the short-termism is their model, right. that strikes me as not being ideal. Right, Ranieri being uh, close yeah. to 70 now, that's the... I guess the the reason people would see him as a, a short term uh, option, apart from the fact that most of his jobs have been on the short side, term wise. Yeah, only once this century has Ranieri lasted over a hundred games in a job. That was that was at Chelsea. He's averaged forty eight matches per oh. job um, this century. So let, I don't know. It feels like a good match, doesn't it? it? It's an appointment, in my opinion, that is designed to keep Watford in the Premier League. By the end of this season and then next season they'll reevaluate and no doubt bring in somebody else. I mean Zisco's actually sent a really nice message to Watford on Twitter this morning, replying saying, um, enjoy it as I have enjoyed it. Watford FC is special. Good luck, Claudio, arm muscle emoji, go for it, three exclamation marks. So which you don't see often from ex managers. Um but mm. Watford's different and he might be reappointed at some point so it's worth you know worth leaving on good terms yeah there's no reason for bitterness no no I'm sure he's had a I, bit of a sweet I mean, day off and... it's a bit like working on an oil rig or something you go to Watford you know it you know it could could go well you get a year mm. and then and then someone else has to go so right you have to drill a lot you know on the training field mm-hmm. um often they're all at sea yeah. Struggling here, to be honest, with the other North Seoul rig parallels, but I'm sure you know what you're talking about. Mm. Um, funny enough, Pozzo means well in Italian. Uh, anyway, on that note, having shed much light on the prospects for the Hornets under their new manager, who is this week's nicest man in football, that's where we come to the end of today's Totally Football Show. Crikey, I've hugely enjoyed it. So many thanks to you, Rory, Duncan, Adrian and producer Charlie and listener you for giving us a reason for doing it. Uh, We will return on Monday and have yourself a great weekend in the meanwhile. But for now, from all of us here, it's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following The Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Totally Football Show is an Athletic Media Company production and sponsored by Paddy Power. The Athletic.